Thanks for downloading from the School of Christ. Support for this program comes from your generous donations. To find out more, visit us online at www.theschoolofchrist.org. We've been progressing for many months now and many weeks through the Gospel of Matthew discussing the king and his kingdom. And tonight we are in Matthew chapter 21, which on the surface looks like a pretty lengthy chapter. It's 46 verses, but uh, I think the way we've got it outlined tonight, it's going to be very evident, the, uh, the organization of the chapter. It's basically saying the same thing three or four times. So tonight we are going to divide it up in this fashion. Part 1, entering Jerusalem. Number 2, cursing the fig tree. Number 3, the parable of the two sons. And number 4, the parable of the vineyard. So, we're going to see now as Jesus progresses on into Jerusalem that this confrontation that's been building between Jesus and the, the religious leadership is now continuing to build and it's coming to a crescendo that is going to culminate in the crucifixion of Christ. But not until Jesus is able to expose them and um, and instruct them as well as instruct us that he is establishing a new covenant, establishing a new kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God, and it's not going to be based on any earthly system of religion. Uh, it will be based on a spiritual foundation, and it will be based on faith and on true righteousness and holiness, not on the false righteousness and false holiness, the false, the falsehoods, the hypocrisies of the spirit of religion. And so we see this contrasted, and, and Matthew has done a very good job to separate and make a distinction between the, the relationship with God versus the religion about God. So our emphasis here is on our relationship with Jesus, not on a religion about Jesus. And I think that's in the same spirit that Jesus is revealing, not only the essence of what it means to be in a relationship with him, but also showing for us in stark contrast what it looks like when someone has the religion, but they don't have the relationship. So we are seeing that uh, represented in the leadership here with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, always representing that wickedness, that um, religious spirit that comes and tries to tempt and test the Lord Jesus and causes all kinds of uh, problems for him. Uh, so... As we come to Matthew 21, he is now entering into the capital of Israel. He's entering into the, the center of that religious system, which uh, was centered around the temple. And so we're going to see him take action here, symbolic of this judgment. Um, and remember, again, if you'll listen to previous webinars, Matthew is trying to write to Jews as a fellow Jew and trying to get them to see uh, how 
and why they miss Jesus as their Messiah and to show that the kingdom of God is now being expanded to include not just the nation of Israel but all nations and indeed anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord whether they are in Israel or whether they are not in Israel. So what we're seeing is a progression of the kingdom of God apart from just the mere geographical boundaries or the mere earthly nation, the physical things that made up the Jews' religion. But it is being established on a spiritual basis, being established on a person, and not just on a set of commandments or a set of laws. And um, uh, as we've also seen, as Matthew has shown us, this is not a new development. This is not something that um, God tried to do it with Israel, and then that failed. And so plan B would be to make a spiritual house and include all the nations of the earth since Israel couldn't live up to the standard that he set. Uh, actually, when you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, when God called Abram, who became Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to, to reach all the nations and bless all the nations through you and because of you. So uh, this is actually part of God's great design. This great purpose that he purposed was to bless all the nations and reach all the nations through Israel. Um, Israel took that for granted and began to think that because God chose them, he chose them to the exclusion of all the other nations instead of understanding that God was using Israel and wanted to use Israel to bless all the nations through her. She tried to grasp that for herself, and um, this is why Jesus is coming to, uh, to demonstrate that this was not God's purpose. That God's purpose is for... Uh, it is for the kingdom of God to increase and to expand far beyond the borders of Israel, far beyond the physical temple, far beyond the physical priesthood. All those things were intended to point to a spiritual reality of which Jesus is saying, now, here, here I am, here to establish a new covenant that is based on my blood, here to establish a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests, and... Um, uh, those who are not going to be obedient will not be a part of this kingdom that is being established upon the foundation of myself. That's the, the message of Matthew. So in Matthew 21, we see Jesus in verse 21 or verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. 
Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And this is their way, I, I would interject here, this was just their way of, of kind of rolling out the red carpet, so to speak, welcoming him to Jerusalem. In verse 9, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we, when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So let's look at that and break that down a little bit. Number one, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey, which is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. We've seen throughout the book of Matthew that he is very careful to point to the Torah, point to the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Covenant, but he always went to the Hebrew Scriptures to demonstrate uh, time and time again how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies concerning the Messiah. So that's very important. Um, and Matthew is very diligent to record those for the benefit of his Jewish readers as well as for our benefit and our instruction. Uh, the other fulfilling thing here is in the book of Psalms. And here uh, he doesn't quote the entire Psalm 118. He quotes uh, Psalm 118.26, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's, he is relating this as what the multitudes are crying out and saying in fulfillment. But I, I would like for you, if you would, to please hold your finger, keep your place there in Matthew 21, and I'd like to turn over to Psalm 118 and, and read the passages surrounding this, uh, this particular portion of Scripture so that you can see that this entire chapter of Matthew is focusing on Psalm 118. And so as we said before, when, when Jesus would say, um, have you never read in the Scriptures where it says thus and so, that because they knew the scripture so well and they had memorized the scriptures, there was a lot more that he was saying just by mentioning one verse. They would immediately fill in the blanks of everything that came after that one individual passage, and they would receive an entire lesson just from Jesus mentioning one, one small passage. So in the same way, when we go over to Psalm 118, Let's begin reading in verse 19, and I, I want to show this to you and see how it fits in with Matthew chapter 21. So Psalm 118, verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. Now, what's it talking about? Do you see that there's a parallel here between Jesus entering into the gates of Jerusalem and Jesus himself being the gate. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He says, strive to enter in at the narrow gate. So when this Old Testament prophecy here says, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter, who is it referring to? What is it referring to? It's referring not to a thing, but referring to a person. So there's a parallel there. Do you see that parallel? 
between entering the gates of Jerusalem and then Jesus himself being the gate. So verse 21, I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Why? Because Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe, and he is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the whole world. So through this gate, this is the gate of the Lord, Jesus, through which the righteous shall enter, Jesus. I will praise you, Jesus, for Jesus has answered me and has become my salvation. And that's what Yeshua means. So uh, that, that God is my salvation, or, or God saves. And then verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And you're going to see Jesus quote uh, this very passage in Matthew 21, the stone which the builders rejected. So you see how we have the crowds. Keep, let's keep reading in verse 25. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. He has given us light. Now watch this. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Now we're talking about a sacrifice. So you, do you see how all of these events are lining up? Matthew has, has twice connected the events of what he is writing about in Matthew 21. He's connected that to Psalm 118. And if you read that entire passage, as we just did from Psalm 118, you see that there's even more layers of meaning there. So we're talking about the Lord being the gate. We're talking about him being rejected. And then it talks about a sacrifice that is being placed on the altar. How about that? So that, that, is, that is your clue as to what is about to happen next. And it's Matthew's way of linking the prophecies with the actual events that he is writing about. So that's that's pretty exciting. I, I, I enjoy going back and seeing those things and bringing those things out. So uh, let's go back over to Matthew chapter 21 and um, continue on here with cleansing the temple. Isn't it interesting that the first thing Jesus does when he comes to Jerusalem is he goes to the temple. And in verse 12, it says he went to the temple of God. And what did he do? He drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So let's stop right there. And what is, what is the significance of cleansing the temple? What were, what were they doing there that they, were, they needed money changers and they were selling doves and, and so forth? And, and what was the situation? Well, when the people would come to bring a sacrifice for the Lord, it had to be inspected by the priest, and the priest had to look at it to make sure that it was acceptable, that there were no blemishes or, or nothing wrong uh, with the sacrifice. And what the practice was at that time, it was a, it was a pretty good practice uh, as far as a money-making business enterprise, that let's say, for example, you brought your sacrifice to the temple, and they would look at it, and they would say, well, sorry, 
this um, this this sacrifice you want to give this this uh, dove or this lamb or whatever you're trying to bring, it's got a flaw. It's it's there's something wrong with it. We can't accept it for a sacrifice. However, we do have over here some doves, and we've got some sheep, and we've got some other items over here that we can sell you at a really good price that we've already inspected. And they are they are good to to sacrifice. We've already certified them and so forth, and it's only X, whatever the amount is. And we'll even give you credit towards it uh, when you trade in this blemished sacrifice. <laughs> so what are you going to do? You just made that long trip to Jerusalem. You say, okay, so give me the, I'll take the, unblemished sacrifice. Well, then they would take your sacrifice and they put it right back there in the back, the one that they said was blemished, and then they would turn around and sell it to the next person who came up. And so they had this really good uh, monopoly on the sacrifices and the money being spent to give the sacrifices. And so they, they had a, a good little uh, system going there. So this is what Jesus is coming to uh, to challenge and to cleanse. And he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So that's that's a little background on the buying and the selling that was going on uh, there in the temple. It was a crooked operation that they were running right there in the temple and taking advantage of the people of God. So it says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But once again, verse 15, we see that there is a problem. And where is the problem? The problem is with these chief priests and scribes. When the chief priests and scribes, verse 15, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were not overjoyed. They were not happy. They were not awe-inspired. It says that they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? See, this is, this is another, this is how a Jewish rabbi rebukes his students. This <laughs> is what you have to understand, that even in the manner in which Jesus is answering them, he is rebuking them. So this is the way a Jewish rabbi rebukes his students who didn't do their homework. He says, yes, have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, or Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. In verse 17, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. And I, I also think it's significant, I just bring this out, that Jesus did not spend the night in Jerusalem. He left there, he went to Bethany, which was uh, a, a sort of a... A, uh, I call it a, a Bethany place. It's a place that represents uh, a, a place on earth where, where the Lord is welcomed, where he is received, where he is ministered to, where he finds fellowship among his brothers and sisters. And it's just interesting to me that he did not find that in Jerusalem. He left Jerusalem and he spent the night in Bethany. So in verse 18, and we begin the second 
section of this chapter was the cursing of the fig tree. The next morning, in verse 18, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Now, this is very significant. Pay attention to this. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So what is the significance of cursing the fig tree. A lot of people don't understand this, and it, it just, uh, they can't wrap their brain around the significance of this and why Jesus would go around and would curse the random fig tree like this. Uh, but it's actually a very prophetic statement, and it's done for our instruction. Matthew includes it because uh, basically he is trying to get across the point that Israel has come under judgment because it has not produced the fruit that the Lord was expecting it to produce. So what we have here is a fig tree with leaves, but without any figs. You think, well, what's so special about that? What is so significant about that? Well, this particular fig tree is different from most trees. Most trees... You see the leaves, and then after a period of time, you see the fruit. But with this particular fig tree, the leaves and the fruit always appeared at the same time. What does that mean? It means when this fig tree, this particular variety, this particular species of fig tree that grows over there, when the leaves appear, the fruit appears at the same time. So when Jesus sees this tree from a distance, he sees the leaves, and what the leaves are, are advertising is, hey, I'm fruitful, because look, my leaves are out. There's another version of this story in one of the other Gospels that says that it wasn't even the season for figs, but yet here is a tree that is already showing its leaves, and so it's suggesting that it's fruitful. When in fact, upon closer examination, we find out that there is no fruit on this tree. It is nothing but leaves. And so what does this represent? Well, this tree, this fig tree with, with leaves without fruit, it represents hypocrisy. It represents words without the corresponding deeds. So... The point here is that Jesus expects fruit. The Lord expects fruit from his fig tree. The prophetic symbolism is that Israel is being judged. Israel has brought themselves themselves under a curse because they are boasting of their leaves, boasting, shall we say, of their covenant that they have, of their special relationship with God, the fact that God chose them and selected them out of all the nations instead of humbling them and filling them with gratitude. Instead it, instead, it lifted them up with pride 
and with arrogance. And so just as the fig tree boasted of its leaves but didn't have any fruit, in the same manner, Israel is boasting of its works and boasting of its status and its relationship with God, and yet it has no fruit. And so this fig tree, without the figs, represents hypocrisy. And so Jesus says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And so that hypocrisy is judged. Uh, and the life of that tree, whatever life that tree had, died and that was the end of that tree. So this is a very, very strong, prophetic, significant act on the part of Jesus to instruct and to teach and to show that Israel is like that fig tree. But this isn't all. Remember, many times in Matthew, we saw this last week, You'll have the same lesson presented not once, not twice, but three times, basically making the same point so that there's no mistaking it, just like with Joseph's dream. Joseph had a dream, and he dreamed basically the same thing two or three times, and it's the or Daniel, same thing with, with Daniel, and so uh, you have this prophetic repetition. So here's the first example, the example of the fig tree showing that Israel is being judged for its lack of fruit. So that's the significance. Now we could go another layer deeper and we could talk about faith. What is faith? Faith is just the, the um, trust that we have that God is who he says he is and God will do what he says he will do. That's all that, that faith is. So there's application for us here, but I'm trying to get at the the prophetic significance of this and how Israel fits into this picture so that we can learn from their example and not follow in their footsteps because uh, I see, and I've said this many times, I see a, a huge parallel between what was going on in Israel in their day and what's going on in Christianity in our day. Uh, so Paul said all these things are written for our example upon whom the end of the ages has come. So it's important for us to look at it and not make the same mistakes that they made. So in verse 23, now when he came into the temple, when Jesus came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Well, Jesus answers them in a very special way. <laughs> he said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So isn't that interesting? He could have just said God, or he could have said my father gave me the authority. Instead, he turns it right back around. <laughs> So then he asked them a question. The baptism of, of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Simple question. But they're smart enough to reason among themselves, saying, verse 25, if we say from heaven, then he will say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus the only possible way they could answer without getting in trouble. We do not know. <laughs> and he said to them, 
Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You can't answer my question. I'm not going to answer your question. But here's another one for you. And this is the first of the two parables here at Matthew 21. They call this the parable of the two sons. What do you think? Verse 28, a man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So how is this related to the parable of the fig tree? Well, the or, or the case of the cursed fig tree, the fig tree that didn't produce the figs. Well, here's the son saying, okay, I'll go. I'll do what you want me to do. He's showing the leaves, isn't he? He's got the right words, but he doesn't have the actions. And as we've already seen, as, as Matthew has already established in recording Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it is by their fruit that you will know them. And what is the fruit? We know for a fact that the fruit is not the words that you say, but it's the things that you do. That's already been established way back in the very beginning of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, not, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will, he who does the will, he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Not the one who says, Lord, Lord. So again, here's the, here's the correlation. Not the son who says, I'll go, but then doesn't go. He didn't do the will of the Father. On the other hand, the one who initially said, I'm not going to do it, but then regretted his decision and went and did it, even though in the beginning he said he wasn't going to do it. That represents repentance. So my, uh, my version here, New King James Version, it says that afterward he regretted it and went. You could just as easily stick in there that he repented and went. Same thing. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. If it does not penetrate heart, mind, and body, if it doesn't penetrate down to your behavior, you haven't repented. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for your sins. Judas felt sorry for his sins. Repentance is more than that. It means to get your heart, your mind, and your actions submitted to the preeminence of Christ. All of you, not just part of you. That's why Jesus said, says, it is not those who say, Lord, Lord, who enter the kingdom of heaven. But, but, what, but what do we say today? Well, just confess the Lord Jesus and, you know, uh, pray the sinner's prayer. Say, Lord, Lord, and, uh, and you're, you're all set. 
There's a new name written down in glory because you, you said, Lord, Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus said is, does not count. It is not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will. Those who do the will. Not the son who says, I'll go and then doesn't do anything. But the one who actually goes and does the will of his father. And you say, well, Brother Chip, I don't understand because it sounds like you're saying that we're saved by works. No, I'm not saying that we are saved by works. We're saved by Jesus. We are saved by faith in the finished work of Christ, and that is by grace. It's not of works so that we can't boast that we have saved ourselves. But that does not mean that now that I'm saved, there's no work for me to do. Because now that I am saved, there is fruit that God is expecting of me. And it's not the kind of legalism, the kind of, of, of works-oriented faith or works-oriented service that would be like a religious spirit that creeps in or somebody like Martha, where Jesus said, uh, Martha, you are sorely vexed and troubled over many things, and she was busy serving. We're not talking about that kind of a of a uh, overworking, because that is when people do that from a religious, uh, legalistic type of a of a understanding. There, there is still something in them that they are trying to prove something and trying to earn something. I don't do the will of God to try and prove something and try to earn something. I try to do the will of God because I'm a son of God, I love God, and I want to please God. And I want to be obedient to him. And the the change in my heart, the change in my mind, and the change in my behavior is a reflection of who I already am in him and who he is in me. It's not my effort. It's not the sweat of my brow. It's not me trying to earn something. It is simply the fruit. It is the fruit of a Holy Spirit-filled, Christ-inhabited person to begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is listed for us in Galatians 5, love and joy and peace, long-suffering, and all of those attributes. Those are character traits. Now, you know, helping, here's the old cliche of helping little old ladies across the street. It's not the acts of doing the good deeds. It's the character of Christ that is being produced in a person that causes them to want to do those good deeds. Where does the desire come from? To help others? Where does the desire come from to love other people? Where does the desire come from to forgive? Where does the desire come from to serve? See, it's not just doing the things. It's the motivation and the character and the spirit behind the things that you are doing. So there are works, but it's not the works. It's the spirit and the character that's in the newness of heart that is happening inside of a person that causes them to do these acts and to do these things, to love one another, to serve one another, to pray for one another, to lay down your life for one another, to have the courage to go and rebuke a brother that is in sin or rebuke a sister and to love them and to forgive them and to uh, 
to bring healing to relationships. The ability to do these things, these are actual things that you can see. And you can see them happening, and you can see when they're not happening. But it's not the, the outward manifestation of these things that um, – how can I communicate it? What I'm trying to communicate is what is happening on the inside of you. Is If, is, if it's real and if it's of the Lord, it's going to have an effect – outwardly it's going to change the way you think it's going to change the way you see the world it's going to change the way you relate to other people it's going to change the way you speak to other people it's going to change the way you treat other people it's going to change your perception it's going to change your reality it is going to change your life and it's that change that we are saying is the evidence of a person who is doing the will of their father and that is the evidence of a person who has truly been born again. So it is not enough to mouth the words and then just to proceed on as you have always lived with no change at all. So you're not saved by what you do, but what you do proves that you have been saved. It is the evidence. Salvation is not the reward. Salvation is the beginning. And the works and the good things and the fruit of the Spirit that you see is the result of the life that's been put within you. A fig tree, let, let, me, let, me use it, let me use this example before we move on. I want to make sure you, you really get this because a lot of people, you know, they, they, get, they get upset because they think now that they're saved, they don't have to do anything. And if they ever did anything, then it would be um, them doing it. And uh, they think that the Christian life is just sitting around and just relaxing and that there's not much to be done. A fig tree is not a fig tree because it produces the figs. It produces the figs because it is a fig tree. A, a fig tree does not earn the right to call itself a fig tree by producing figs. It simply produces the figs because it is a fig tree, and that is the nature of a fig tree to produce figs. That's its nature. So when it does what comes natural, it only proves that it is what it is. So in the same way, when a Christian, when someone who is born again, when someone who is walking in a relationship with Jesus, when they are being discipled by Jesus, when they have come to him to learn of him, and they are being discipled by Jesus, there is going to be evidence of that relationship in their life. There's going to be the fruit of the Spirit. There's going to be changes in behavior, changes in thoughts, changes in speech, changes in actions. They're not saved by all of those things, by all of those changes. All of those changes are simply the fruit of that walk with God and that relationship with God. They don't become 
born again by those things. Those things just demonstrate and prove that they already are born again, that they are sons and daughters of the Most High God. So I hope that clarifies it for somebody. Somebody must have been struggling with that because uh, the Lord had me spend quite a bit of time on that. So I hope that it's helpful to you. Well, when we look at the parable of the two sons, this is what we see. Here's the question. Not which one of them expressed their desire. You know, we as human beings, we say a lot of things. But I have learned that it doesn't make any difference what a person says. You have to look at their actions. I don't even trust the things that I say if I don't have the actions to, to prove it. So that, that's a good way of looking at it. I think that's the way the Lord looks at it. Not which of the two said, but which of the two did the will. Now, Paul says teachers have to be careful. I have to be careful, Paul said, because I don't want to be in a position where I taught everybody else and then I, I don't I fail to achieve. I fail to live up to the things that I'm I'm teaching you. Uh, so that goes for all of us. Which of the two sons did the will? Well, the one who said he would go but did not go, it's just like the fig tree bearing leaves but not having the fruit. It's the son who the son who did not do the will is Israel. So here's lesson number two of three lessons in Matthew twenty one that's telling us Israel is in big trouble. And they're in trouble not because they failed to observe some outward commandment or because they failed to maintain the temple or because they failed to take care of the priesthood. Oh, they have the outward things all under control. But there was something going on on the inside of them that was not right. It was not pure. And it represented something that was antagonistic to the spirit of Jesus. So you see this clash here. And so here's the warning, the threefold warning again from Matthew, demonstrating that Israel is in big trouble. And it's not just Matthew simply recording what the Lord Jesus himself is declaring to them. So first he does it in parable or in um, in a symbolic prophetic nature of cursing the fig tree so that we can get it. Now he's beginning to tell parables and he's giving the interpretation of parables to them. Um, so let's go on to verse 33 and we come to the final section, the parable of the vineyard. Verse 33, Jesus says, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. See, once again, fruitfulness. God expects fruit. He expects a return on his investment. That is the law of sowing and reaping. And I'll tell you something else. We can expect, this, this is, it, it works both ways. We can expect that whatever we sow, the Bible says God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that will you also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap of the flesh corruption. 
But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap of the Spirit eternal life. So God expects to see fruit. God expects to see growth. He wants us to grow. That's why the Bible says grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say just sit back and rest in the fact that you're saved by grace and you don't have to do anything. No, it says desire the sincere milk of the word that you may what? Grow thereby. God expects growth and he expects fruit because the fruit is the evidence that the thing is living and God is life. God is love. God is light. He is all of these things. And so he has established this creation so that it would produce fruit after its own kind. That's the law that he established in Genesis. Well, what's the spiritual parallel? That Jesus would produce fruit and that we would produce fruit after his own kind. So he is reproducing himself in us, his spirit, his character, his nature. It's all being reproduced in us so that he is producing fruit that is pleasing to his Father. And then as we abide in him, as we dwell in him, as we continue to live in him, he continues to live and dwell in us. And he says, you will bear much fruit and your fruit will remain. So fruit is a very, very important spiritual principle in the scriptures as well as in the kingdom of God. So we see it when the fig tree didn't give the fruit, the fig tree was cut off from the life. We're not, listen, we're not going to spend energy maintaining something just for the outward appearance. That's a waste. Unless we can get some fruit from the fig tree, we don't want the fig tree just to put out a bunch of leaves, a lot of false advertising, and a lot of hypocrisy when there's really nothing to it. That's a waste. Cut it off. Kill it. Get rid of it. Jesus says, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you, and you'll produce much fruit. But any branch that does not abide in me will be cut off and burned in the fire. So take that however you want, but the way I take it is if I am connected to him, if I'm walking in relationship with him, there's going to be fruit in my life. There will be fruit in your life, and that's how Jesus says you will know them, not by their words, but by their fruit. You will know if you're walking with Jesus, you will know if other, if other people are walking with Jesus by the fruit they produce. All right? So you have a fig tree that doesn't produce the fruit. The fig tree is gone. You have two sons. One son had a good talk, but he failed to produce. He failed to go out and actually do the work. He failed to go out and, and do his father's will. And so he is not to be compared to the son who did go out and actually did it. He's the one that, by implication, he's the one that is going to be blessed for his obedience. Now we have a, a third illustration here of the exact same principle that when the season comes that there is a time when God wishes to inspect and to see if something is producing the fruit. There is, there is a time, Paul says, when we will all give an account of ourselves to God at the judgment seat of Christ. When not our souls are judged, but our works are judged. So don't listen to anyone who tells you that works are not important 
because you're saved no matter what. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about obedience. We're talking about going further than mere salvation, if I could put it to you that way. We're talking about a fruitful, fulfilling, intentional relationship with God. We are talking about you fulfilling your ultimate purpose. And I don't believe salvation is your ultimate purpose. I believe salvation opens the door for your ultimate purpose. Your ultimate purpose, brothers and sisters, is to live in union with God, to abide in him, to walk in the light, and to bear the fruit of that relationship with him, which is a, a relationship based on love. Being saved, entering into the narrow gate through Christ makes that possible. But there is a, a long journey. It's a narrow path that extends beyond that narrow gate. And that narrow path is discipleship. Because it is impossible for you to fulfill the ultimate purpose and the ultimate intention of God for your life and remain as a babe to remain as a babe just inside the narrow gate is a failure to live up to your highest and fullest potential. The reason God brought you into the kingdom is for you to walk in relationship with him, and then it extends beyond that is so that you can be a representation of that relationship to those around you, so that you can be an ambassador for Christ, and you can demonstrate the testimony of Jesus to those around you by the life that you live. So what I'm getting at is that you were called for much more than to merely receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. That is step one. It's absolutely critical, but it's the beginning of the journey. It's not the end of the journey. Jesus says the life is at the end of the path not at the beginning of the path. The gate only takes a minute to pass through, but the path takes a lifetime to walk. You have to start somewhere. The starting point is there at the gate. But beyond that, my friends, there is a path. It is a narrow path. It is a narrow way. And Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate. But he also says, I am the way. I am the narrow path. So the first is salvation, the second is discipleship. Lots of people want to claim the salvation, but they don't want to claim the discipleship. They want to claim Jesus as Savior, but they don't want to acknowledge him as Lord. They want all the benefits, but they want don't want anything to do with the, the disciplines of being a disciple. So I'm just pointing that out, challenging you with a scriptural principle that says God is looking for fruit. He's looking for growth. And the very things that, listen, the very things that we complain about and that we, we grumble about are the very things that often God permits in our life so that we can grow beyond spiritual immaturity and grow up into Christ and be no more children tossed to and fro, but would grow up into him and come to fullness of stature. And the very things that we are upset with in our life, a lot of times, it is God's way of trying to push us out of the nest so that we will flap our wings. 
It's God's way of trying to get us to grow up and to make progress because maybe we've been camped out right there just inside the gate and we've gotten really comfortable right there at the gate and God says it's time to move on. You've got to advance down the path and I'm going to make it so that you're not comfortable anymore sitting still, sitting where you are. So growth is a kingdom principle. He must increase, it says in John 3.30. It's not optional. Christ must increase. And in order for Christ to increase, it says, but I must decrease. So this is the process of discipleship. It's not just God adding a lot of things to me. It is as much God removing things from me that helps me to grow and to make progress in spiritual things. It's not just the addition of all every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Thank God for that. But it's also the stripping away and the reducing to Christ. So it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. That's the secret of the Christian life. So there comes a time, as it came in verse 34, where he sends his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And that's kind of what I'm doing with this small group of people here tonight, maybe two and a half, three dozen people here on the live teaching tonight. I'm the servant of the Lord, so to speak, and I'm coming now and I'm asking, where is the fruit? God is looking for the fruit. Are you growing? Are you maturing? Are you desiring the sincere milk of the word and are you growing from it? Are you growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is Christ increasing in you even as you are decreasing? Are you living and dwelling and abiding in him? And is he living and dwelling and abiding in you? Are you producing fruit? So I'm inspecting you tonight and I'm challenging you in a good way because if you're here, um, there's lots of other places you could be, but you're here because uh, you're hungry and thirsty for the scriptures. And that puts you right there. It puts you in a class all by yourself. It makes you unique. It makes you a, a person who is standing out from the thousands and thousands of other people who are just passive observers, but you're come to participate. You're come to open the scriptures. And so I commend you. And I congratulate you for taking an interest and taking responsibility for your personal spiritual growth and development. So in verse 35, the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Uh, stoned another. <laughs> so uh, going around to inspect the fruit is not a very... Uh, easy job. People don't like to have their fruit inspected, do they? Verse 36, again, he sent another, he sent other servants more than the first and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, in verse 37, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dresser saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And now remember, he's talking to the Jewish leadership here. And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Don't you love how Jesus does this? He gives them just enough rope for them to, to hang themselves with it. So by your own mouth, you're judging yourself. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? And here we go back again to Psalm 118. That's why, this, uh, that's why we read that, because it's so significant here with Matthew 21. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, and this is the significance here, one of the most significant passages in Matthew, one of the most significant, important, pivotal passages in the New Testament. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. I mean, that to say that in that day and time and to those people would be the have the same effect as dropping a nuclear bomb on New York City. Now do you understand why they wanted to kill him? You, can you see the the parallels in this story, in this parable that he has told them? Verse 44, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Again, we see the same things in the parable of the vineyard. Fruitfulness is expected, but it's not received. The servants who came to inspect the fruitfulness, the prophets, they were mistreated. Finally, the son himself comes, and he's rejected and killed and cast out of the vineyard. And so the vine dressers are replaced with new ones. And the key point here that Jesus says is that the kingdom will be taken away from you from Israel and will be given to another nation who will bring forth the fruits as they are supposed to as God expects well what a powerful earth-shattering statement to make the first question I have is if the kingdom was taken from Israel and given to another nation, then what is that other nation? Because I want to get on the first airplane and fly to that nation, wherever the kingdom of God is, whatever nation God gave that kingdom to, that's where I want to be. If it's not Israel, then where is it? Well, we have the answer. We're finished with Matthew 21 for tonight, so if you would like, you can turn over to First Peter. And I'm going to tell you 
what this nation is that the kingdom of God has been given to. First Peter chapter 2. And let's begin in verse 4. And this is Peter, another Jew, who is writing to both Jews and Gentiles. And in verse 4, Peter says, Coming to him as to a living stone. Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. Coming to Jesus as to a living stone, who was rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, here's that scripture again from Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble. Who's he talking about? Israel. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you see now the significance of that holy nation? When you take what Peter is saying here, and you go back to what Jesus told the Jews, that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and will be given to another nation who will bring forth the fruits. Peter tells us who that nation is. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God. Who are the people of God? It's not the Jews. Well, it is the Jews, but it's not exclusively the Jews. That's the point. The people of God are those who come to the Lord, who come to God by and through Jesus Christ. He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now understand, we're talking about the rejection of the Jews. Romans 11 is a very, very deep spiritual mystery because there it says that all Israel will be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and that Israel fell and was rejected precisely so that this gospel could go out to all the Gentiles and that all the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the fullness of the nations can come in and be saved, and then Israel also would be restored. Now, you, you try to figure that out with your mind, and it will blow your mind. But um, when, when we look at uh, what the Scripture is telling us, it's saying that God's purpose indeed from the very beginning, was to be inclusive of all the nations. And by selecting Israel, the point was that through Israel to bless all the nations. So when we say that we are now the people of God, 
what we're saying is that all who have faith and trust and belief and hope and salvation through Christ, whether they are Jew or Gentile, is, um, is irrelevant. Paul says that we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Not the circumcision by cutting away the flesh, but the cutting away of the of the hardness of our hearts and being having a new heart. So the new covenant spiritualizes everything that was in the old covenant. It universalizes it. It opens the door to everyone. It's all inclusive, and it is a a wonderful, wonderful good news for those who see it and those who believe it and receive it. Those who were once not a people are now the people of God. Those who had not obtained mercy because they were outside of Israel, he says, now have obtained mercy because God has extended his this good news and this grace to all. Well, praise the name of the Lord. Give you a lot to think about tonight, a lot to meditate on. I want to leave you with a couple of takeaways before we close out. Takeaway number one, what carries weight with God is right words. Yes, right words are important, but right words followed by right actions. Again, the question is, which of the two sons did the will of his father? Not the one who had good intentions, but the one who had good deeds that followed with his good words. And then takeaway number two. Here's the principle of, of increase and decrease. And I see something here where Jesus says, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever the stone falls on will be crushed. Better to throw yourself, I believe, on the rock than be crushed by the rock. Better to submit yourself to the preeminence of Christ. You're going to be broken either way. Either you're going to fall on the rock and be broken, or you're going to resist and wait for the rock to fall on you and be crushed, but being crushed is a lot worse than being broken. So if if all things will be submitted beneath his feet anyway, I would rather submit to him out of love than uh, have the rock fall on me and be crushed. There is certainly going to be a more severe test and a more severe judgment on those who do not judge themselves. Paul says if we judge ourselves, then we will not be judged. And part of this judging myself is say, is coming to the Lord, surrendering, and saying, Lord, um, I, I want to cooperate with you and submit myself to your preeminence uh, and, um, and cast myself upon the rock in a, in a way that I can be broken and can be restored and find in my decreasing the increase of Christ and the blessing of a relationship with him. Rather than be rebellious and be stiff-necked and be uh, hypocritical and try to resist the inevitable. I believe it's inevitable. I believe it's irresistible. Even though people do try to resist it, they do try to go in their own way. I believe Jesus is irresistible. He must increase, therefore he will increase, and he is increasing. And you can no more stop that increase. You don't have the power to stop it. You don't have the will to stop it. Uh, it, it is 
bigger and larger than you are. How and why we want to deify people and make them more powerful than God and believe that they can limit God just by their uh, unwillingness to cooperate is beyond me. God is able to submit, it says. He's able to subdue all things beneath his feet. And um, I just believe that he will. But I think it would be better for us to, in advance of that, go ahead and throw yourself on the rock. Allow yourself to be broken on the rock. Accept that decreasing. Accept the cross. Embrace the cross. What have you got to lose? Lay down your life. Give up your life so that you can save your life and find your life. The ones who grasp and try to hang on and resist, they're the ones that are going to have the most difficult time of it. So uh, my counsel is that it's better to throw yourself on the rock and be broken than it is to wait and resist and it find that the rock is falling on you and grinding you to powder. Uh, so that that is my that is my counsel and my word of wisdom uh, for those who will receive it. If you'd like to find out more about the School of Christ and how to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at www.theschoolofchrist.org. 